Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, church family, we begin a new series this morning. We are going through the book of Colossians, and we're doing kind of a quick pass through it. The book is four chapters, and we're going to make our way through those four chapters over the next six, seven-ish weeks. And so, um, my hope is this, that throughout this series, that Jesus would become bigger to you, that his grace would become bigger, that he would be bigger in his work, in all that he has accomplished, and that he would become bigger in your life, that he would be at the center of everything. Has anyone ever heard of a Hoberman sphere? No? Okay. You've probably seen one. If uh, you look at the uh, left corner here, uh, they're often made as children's toys. And so they're these um, constructed spheres that kind of fold together with lots of rods, and then they expand to bigger. Has anybody had one of those as a kid, played with one? Okay. So to the right here, there's a huge one. The kid's toy is, uh, I think they're about five inches and they expand to about 30 inches. Uh, this one at Liberty Museum in New Jersey expands to 19 feet. And so I want the, the Hoberman sphere to kind of be the image that we have in mind of how Jesus would become bigger for us through this series. Uh, let's do a little bit of background to kind of set the tone where we're going. So. The book is written by the Apostle Paul. If you remember anything of Paul's story, he was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians, and then he had a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus as the resurrected Jesus appears to him. And then Paul would become an apostle and a missionary to bring the gospel into all of the world. 
And so this book is written by Paul. And Paul, uh, on one of his missionary journeys in 52 AD, he spends about three years in uh, Ephesus. And while he's there, there's a guy named Epaphras who comes to Ephesus. He gets converted. And then he goes back to his hometown, Colossae, and he begins to share the gospel, and the church begins in Colossae. And so the book of Colossians is then written about 10 years later in 62 AD, and at this point, uh, the church has been going, but there's problems. There's some dangerous teaching happening. And so what Paul does is he writes this letter to the church there to be an encouragement uh, to them and to help correct some of the bad teaching. And so that is kind of the nature of the book. And so we don't know exactly what the dangerous teaching was, but it appears that there was someone inside the church that had appeared to be uh, an authority on spiritual matters. And they had been instructing, kind of building a following within the church to participate in certain rituals and rites to protect against evil spirits. And so Paul, in addressing this, he doesn't uh, minimize or diminish any of those things, but he says, here's the answer. It's not these rites and rituals. The answer is Jesus. In him, you have everything that you need. And so Paul's letter is to encourage them back, moving them back toward Jesus. He begins his letter with a greeting and a giving of thanks for all that God has done in this place. And then he goes to our text that you heard today. So before we dig into that text, let's take a moment and pray that God would speak to our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word this day. As we read this letter this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to it. It is not a dead letter of dead men, but Lord, it is your living word, and it is for us today. So I pray that you would challenge us by it, that you would comfort us by it, that you would transform us by it, that you would make us more like Jesus. And I pray that you would use me, a crooked stick, to draw a straight line to the truth of your word. I ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the first verse... There's the map. So Colossae is uh, in uh, what we would consider modern-day Turkey. And uh, if you look, see, I've got a little uh, pointer here. So if you look just to the left, you can see Ephesus. And so that was kind of the center of all those things we were talking about. Um, so our first verse, let's jump in here. Uh, this first section, it really reads like a creed. It sings like a hymn of who Jesus is. So let's take a look. 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, John 1, 18 tells us this. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has revealed what God is like. He is the exact uh, person of God. So if you want to know who God is and what he is like, Colossians 1 is telling us, look at Jesus, and there you will find it. He is the firstborn of creation. Now, this can be a little bit of a confusing term, okay? So firstborn of creation does not mean that he was the first one to be created. Uh, There are different faiths that actually believe that, that believe that Jesus was created, that he is not uh, eternal. And so those would be Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, there are different groups even uh, that go beyond that, that teach that Jesus was a created being. But here's the problem. He is not a created being because the activities of Jesus are those of God alone. Jesus receives worship. Worship belongs to God alone. Jesus forgives sins. That belongs to God alone. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. John 1 says that Jesus, the Word, is God. So what does this mean? Well, going back to kind of the controversy of it, uh, really, in, uh, in the fourth century, uh, this came to a head. There was a guy named Arius, and um, in the early church, he was really pushing on this idea. No, Jesus was actually made by God. He was created by God, and that he's not uh, co-eternal with God the Father. And the early church uh, ended up um, coming around this issue and they created a creed to clear the matter. And so that creed is still recited all over the world today. It's on our website. What is it? The Nicene Creed. We'll take a look at just the sentence that deals with this. Uh, It starts out, we believe in God. There's some statements that uh, flesh that out. And then we get to the second person of the Trinity and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light from light, true God from true God. And then here's where it clears it up. Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. So Jesus is the firstborn of creation, but he is not a created being. So what does that mean? It means this, that the firstborn language has to do with status. It means that he has the position of the firstborn of all creation. So in ancient society, the firstborn was was the preeminent, right? And so they got the bulk of the inheritance. They had rights and privileges. And so this text is showing us that Jesus is like that in status over all creation. He's like the firstborn with its rights and privileges. Okay, let's take a look at the next verse at 16. 
For, all, uh, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When I lived in St. Louis, I worked at a church, and there was a, a family that came to me one day, and they said, you know, um, we wanted to talk to you about something. We have a son, he's five, and he said that he's been seeing things in his room. Um, we don't know if he's like seeing demons or if it's just his imagination. And so we wanted to know if you would just come to the house and pray over this place where we live. Uh, but I don't know, what do you think? And I said, well, Prayer is always the right answer, okay? So the spiritual realm is real. Is it possible that your son could be seeing something in that realm? Yes, that's possible. Is it possible that it's just his imagination? Yes, that's possible too. So what's the answer? Pray. And so we prayed together. I prayed for peace over that house. I prayed that if there was anything uh, in demonic forces there, that the name of Jesus would cast it away. And that's what this verse is telling us, that Jesus is above all that stuff. And so if you have him, you have all that you need. He is over the visible and the invisible. And so in him, you can have confidence of knowing that you have nothing ultimately to fear when you are in him because he is over all of it. That's true for the Colossians. That's true for that family in St. Louis. And it's true for you and for me. All right, let's take a look at the next verse, verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is an amazing claim. What holds the universe together is not an idea. It's not a virtue. It is a person. Isn't that amazing? The universe is held together by the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. Isn't that amazing? Jesus not only makes it all, but he sustains it all. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is not just first in ranking as the firstborn of creation, but he is also the founder. He wasn't the first one to even experience resurrection. So he raised Lazarus's, uh, Lazarus from the grave. He raised Jairus's daughter from the grave. And so what is being said here is this, that he is the one that has begun a new order, a new order of resurrection. 
Through faith in Jesus, all will experience this new order. He is the founder of the kingdom of resurrection. And all of that so that he would be first in our lives. It's amazing. Okay, let's take a look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, there is nothing of God that we do not find in the Son. All the attributes of God the Father belong to God the Son. And that pleases the Father. It pleases Him. And so, all that it is to be known and experienced of God is to be found in Jesus Christ. And there's this fullness in Him this fullness of God, and it's a fullness that we long for. You may have heard it said that man is made with with a God-shaped hole in his heart. There's this emptiness in our hearts that only God can fill. And if you want to experience the fullness of God, Colossians 1 tells us it's to be found in Jesus All right, verse 20 brings us to the work of Jesus. This is one of my favorite verses. This verse flipped my life upside down when I was in seminary. So, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, all things. I had a seminary professor that had this great line. He said, Jesus is saving all things and some people, (laughs) right? So there's this enormous totality of what Jesus is doing. He's reconciling all things. Now, I grew up with this idea that there's a pretty short list of stuff that Jesus cared about. He cared about these issues. They were central, okay? So that makes it uh, really easy to vote, right? So just vote for the candidate that cares about the stuff Jesus cares about, right? But here's the problem. Jesus is reconciling all things. He cares about all of it. Uh, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has this great line where he says, there's not one square inch in all of creation where Jesus does not call out this is mine. He cares about all of it. He's reconciling all of it to himself. Now, the fact that everything needs to be reconciled to God shows us that all things no longer bear the relationship to their creator that they once did. Okay, so our world is broken, and it's a result of the fall of mankind's rebellion against God. And so Jesus reconciling all things is this. It means that he's promising to fix it. He's promising to fix all that is broken in our world. And how does he do it? He makes peace by the blood of his cross. 
Now, if we go to the time this is written, all this language that we've been hearing uh, in Colossians 1 about Jesus, the same language was used of Caesar, okay? That Caesar was God. That peace came by Caesar. That Caesar sustained all. And Colossians 1 is telling us, no, it's actually Jesus that sustains all of it. How does Caesar go about making peace? By conquering. He wants to bring peace by the sword. But Jesus, he brings peace by the cross, by dying. What a juxtaposition of the way that peace would come. The problem with our world is a problem of peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. Okay, so our world lacks shalom. Now, often in English, we think of peace as just the opposite of war. But shalom is this multifaceted peace. It is a peace between God and man. It is a peace between mankind and mankind, between each other. It is a peace within ourselves. And it is a peace with God's creation. And Colossians 1 is telling us this, that that full, beautiful picture of peace, it comes by the cross of Jesus. That's what it is for Jesus to reconcile our world. It's to make peace in each of those areas. Chapter, excuse me, uh, verse 21 tells us this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, okay, it's telling us this, don't forget where you started. You are also a part of Jesus' reconciling work. Through faith, we not only get to experience the shalom of God, but we get to be agents of shalom, agents of his peace in his world. We get to be part of this work of reconciliation. And so we get this beautiful picture in these first verses of who Jesus is. But then it begs the question for us, why did he come here? Why did Jesus come to earth? And this passage answers some big questions for us. Many people, even many Christians, wrongly think that the reason Jesus came was to teach us. The problem is the world just needs a master teacher. If we followed the Sermon on the Mount, all the problems of the world would be gone. There'd be no more war. And so if Jesus is a teacher, we just need someone to say, tell us what to do. Once we get the instruction, then we're good. Then we can do it. Okay? Others say the reason that Jesus came into this world is to be an example for us. You can tell me all you want, but I just need to see it. If I can see it, then I can do it. And so Christianity is simply imitating Christ would be that view. 
okay? What would Jesus do? If I just do that, then I'm good. But here's the thing. This amazing summary of Christianity in our passage today, it mentions nothing about Jesus' teaching or his example. It shows us the person that Jesus is and the work that he is, but it says nothing of his teaching and example. And so the point of Jesus' teaching is this, and this is profound, is that he's showing us we can't do it. Jesus is showing us that we can't do what he is instructing. Okay, so the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus will not save us. It can't save us. Okay, so if we just look at the teaching of Jesus to save us, just do what he says, okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. Good luck on that, right? Don't have malice thoughts about anyone. Good luck with that for five minutes if you're me. Okay, so that teaching does not save us. Now, if we go to the example side, just follow the example. Do everything he did and you will be saved. That won't work either. So the teaching and the example of Jesus don't save us. You know what they do? They actually condemn us. They, they show us just how far gone we really are. So then... What is our hope? What can save us? That brings us to verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's a problem here. God cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. He would be unjust if he did that. And so we have this problem of sin that the teaching of Jesus exposes, the example of Jesus exposes. And so what are we to do with that? There is a, a debt that must be paid for our sin. And we can't pay our own debt. We can't pay for those sins that we commit. And because we are sinners, we can't pay the debt for somebody else either. Who can? Only the one who is sinless. He lives the life we can't, not just as some kind of example, but as one who can pay the debt for our sin. The price of freedom has been paid, and that is good news. During the time of this book, when it was written, uh, one could be a, uh, a servant, a slave, and it was possible that someone could come and pay a price and free them from that slavery. And that is exactly what this passage is telling us that Jesus does. He comes and he pays the price to set 
us free. Now, that means this, that what Jesus came to do was not primarily teaching. It was not example. What he came to do was to die. That's this verse. This verse. He came to die. It's by his death that we are free. So, this is the story in all of the scriptures. It's a story about God coming, and he comes to die. He's born so that he can die. And so, Jesus came to die, and it means this, that the death of Jesus is not a tragedy. It's a victory. Genesis 3 tells us that Jesus will be struck. Isaiah 53 tells us that he will be crushed for our iniquities. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time, before Jesus even starts his public ministry, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die so that we might live. And so what is our response? Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's the question. How much Jesus do you want? How much Jesus do you want? There's a uh, kind of a medieval urban legend about a people called the Gauls. And so the Gauls in antiquity were a warring people. And they were eventually conquered by Rome. And once conquered, missionaries came and they uh, began to evangelize the Gauls. And the Gauls would come to faith and they would take them into river, into the river and baptize them. And the legend was that the Gauls, as they were being baptized, would take their right arm and lift it above the water so the water didn't go um, over their arm. And the missionaries were kind of perplexed by it and going, hmm, why, why did they leave their right arm out? And what they found was that the next battle or skirmish that came, the Gauls would go back to war with their club or with their sword and say, this arm hasn't been baptized. And so they could then kill in a very unchristian manner, right? So the question for us is, what is it that we're withholding? What do we withhold from Jesus and say, you, you can have uh, this part of my life, but, but this part over here, that belongs to me. I'm not giving you that. Maybe it's your wallet. Jesus, you can have everything else, but not my money. Maybe it's... Um, your desires. You know, Jesus, you can have all these other things, but the, the desires, those belong to me. Maybe it's 
Um, maybe it's your possessions to say, you know what, Jesus, these belong to me. You can have every other part of my life, but my possessions, those are for me to enjoy. Is it your career? You know, I'll do whatever it takes to get where I want to go. Is Jesus with you when you fill out your taxes? Is there something you've been holding from Jesus? And really the question is not, is there something? It's what is it? We all withhold something. What is it that you're withholding? And so if Jesus is small, if he just occupies the margins of your life, then you'll see him as your assistant, as your servant. You know what, Jesus? I need you to do some things for me here. How much Jesus do you want? If we are going to follow the commands of verse 23, we don't need a piece of Jesus. We need the whole thing, right? To continue securely established in the faith, that is not a solo endeavor. This letter, it's written to a community, not an individual. And so God is speaking to this community the same way. If we are to stay securely established in our faith, we have to do it together. How well do you know people here? How well do they know you? If it's just your name, where you live, where you work, you're not really known. If that's all you know of other people around you, they're not really known. So again, a little plug for community groups. This is the way for us to securely establish ourselves in the faith, to be known and to know. Don't put your hope in other things is also the message here. Don't shift your hope. This description of Jesus in Colossians 1 uses the language of the first century culture which believed these things about Caesar. And his image, the image of Caesar, was plastered all over the city. It was on coins. It was on buildings. It was in public stadiums to just keep reinforcing, that is your hope. It's Caesar. It's Caesar. Everywhere you look, it's Caesar. And Colossians 1 is saying, don't get sucked in to the hope that is posted all around you, that is plastered all around you. So the same is true for us, right? We have a different hope that's plastered everywhere, on every billboard, every commercial, every magazine cover you see, even just walking through the grocery store. We have all these things that promise hope and cannot deliver. There is one hope that can deliver, and it is the hope of Jesus. And so Colossians 1 is calling us then to this Christian imagination, an imagination that sees Jesus as the hope of all things. And it's the Holy Spirit that now captivates our imaginations for God's kingdom under the rule of Christ. It's the dynamic power of God that then enables us to follow Jesus through faith. The order 
is crucial. Saved, then follow, right? And so if we flip it around and say, just do the example, follow the example, follow the teaching, and then you'll be saved, that is crushing. It has to go the other way. He saves us first through faith, and then that enables us to follow him. So this hymn is simply, it's not meant simply to give us more information, but rather to uh, stir our imaginations to see the world differently. Biblical imagination looks beyond appearance to what God is doing in this world. It's to look at every aspect of brokenness with hope and to engage it with imagination knowing that God is reconciling all things. That's the story you heard from Paula this morning, right? It's seeing those families in a, in a shelter in Chatsworth, right? It's seeing a woman with cancer trying to feed her kids, and it's reimagining that with hope. And so the call for us is to look at the whole earth as being reconciled by Jesus, to stir our imaginations in hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the image of God. You make all things. You sustain all things. All things have been created through you and for you. You are the head of the church. You are first in the new order of resurrection. Lord, thank you for how your word has revealed these things. Lord, now as we try to live out the truths of this, Help us to live it out with imagination that we can see you reconciling all things and that we can be agents of shalom and engage in your work of reconciliation. So Lord, help us to remain in the faith, to be steadfast in our faith and to not look at the things of this world for our hope, but to look at Jesus alone. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.